us to, chap to Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, please join me in the reading of the prayer of confession and devotion as printed. Lord Jesus, you are king of heaven and earth and king of my soul. I submit to you who owned me as creator and redeemed me as both ransom and redeemer. In God's judgment at the cross, you traded your righteous robes for my sinful garments. You were cast off that I might be brought in, judged an enemy that I might be welcomed as a friend, wounded that I might be healed, made ashamed that I might inherit glory. My heart is sworn to you. I have no other Savior. I have no other Lord. I want to love no other more than I love you. Yet my sinful and self-centered actions have betrayed the words I have just said. Strengthen my feeble devotion and your grace and patience. Have mercy on my life and posterity. Under your reign, I rest my soul. Amen. As believers in the gospel of grace and the covenant of grace that God has made with his people, Lift up your heads and receive this word from Psalm 103. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Amen. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be here this morning. Lord, remind us of your faithfulness and steadfast love. For without your spirit inside of us, we cannot truly be a thankful people. But we are thankful because from you and through you and to you are all things. To God be the glory. Amen. You may be seated. Periodically, we will say much to you. Uh, I will stress to you the importance of having your own Bible. Uh, we have these scripture sheets. I have, we have them every Sunday morning, and it keeps you from having to turn back and forth. Uh, but a lot of you enjoy turning back and forth and, and learning and seeing these things in your own Bible, and you ought to. Uh, I hope that uh, all of us will get in the habit of bringing our own personal Bibles to worship. I want to show you something. This, this, I, I started laughing yesterday when I was looking at this. Uh, this is my Bible in the last part of Luke 17 and all of Luke 18. This is what it looks like. You see these, you, you, can you see the writing from where you are? Most of those notes were made uh, in the last few months in reading this. 
Uh, what I'm saying is that as well as I know Luke 18, uh, I'm sitting at my desk this week and I'm still making notes. Um, I have spent more time in the gospel according to Luke than I have any book in the Bible. Um, and I tell you that every week I see something I haven't seen. Now, think about that. If I didn't have my, you know, if I didn't have my own Bible looking at it, uh, those notes wouldn't be there. I encourage you. Uh, you may want to use a scripture sheet. Use it. Make notes on it. Bring your Bible just in case that you go there and, and you don't have to turn to all the other passages. Bring your Bible to, to hang on to that passage. But you can also take this home. You can make notes on this and take this home and, and make those notes uh, in Scripture. It's just a good habit uh, to have. When Jesus' words are hard to hear, you need to know that this was the third time recorded in the gospel according to Luke that Jesus had spoken of his death. Remember, in the first part of his ministry, his emphasis was completely on his identity, his identity as the Son of Man and the Son of God, that he was deity. And then with that confession by the apostles, the, the confession by the disciples that he was indeed the Christ of God, when he asked them, who do you say that I am? Immediately, he stressed his emphasis in his teaching. At that point, he began to speak about what he had come to do. Immediately, he began to talk to them about the crucifixion. This is the third time recorded in Luke that he had spoken of his suffering and death. But his disciples did not get it. How do we know they didn't get it? Well, in, in Matthew 16, 21, where that great confession takes place, we read, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. These words were strange to Peter's ears. That can't happen, Jesus. Now imagine this. Jesus just told you, the Son of God has just told you what's going to happen. And Peter looks at him and says, that can't happen. That's not going to happen, Jesus. In our passage we read this morning in Luke 18, verse 34, after he had spoken to them in detail, this is more detail than they had used previously, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them they did not grasp what he said. Was God hiding it from them? Was Jesus just taunting them with something that it was not possible to understand? This would be like taunting a blind man that could not see. That's not what was happening. Jesus was earnestly teaching these men that he loved. He wanted them to see it, but they couldn't see it because of what was 
what we would call their own sins, their own blindness, their own self-centeredness. Jesus kept calling them to see and know what he saw and what he knew. But there was something inside of them that just stopped them from seeing. This was a call. This was a call being issued by Christ. If you want to understand this, as he began to speak of his, his crucifixion, you have to understand it that he was not only teaching, he's trying to teach his disciples what would happen, but it was a call to them. Look at verse 31. And taking the 12, he was addressing this not to the crowds, but to the 12. This is specific. He knew they weren't getting it. And taking the 12, the NIV, the New International Version says, gets it better. It says, and taking the 12 aside. In other words, he was specifically speaking to them. See, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. This is not only what I'm telling you, but you should already know it because it's in the prophets. The prophets wrote about it. We say, John, how was this a call? It was a call to the disciples for the, to let go of their self-made Messiah. It's a call to us this morning to let go of our self-made Messiah. You say, what are you talking about? Well, let's read it one more time. And taking the twelve aside, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. If you had asked Peter or John, when they heard that, they were standing there, when they heard that, if you would have said, will Jesus be taken prisoner and given over to the Romans? They would have said, no, that can't happen. If you would have said, Will Jesus be mocked and be spit upon? Jesus had just said he would be mocked and spit on. If you had said, is that going to happen? They would have said no. Will Jesus be flogged and killed? They would have said no. Why? Because the Messiah, the image of the Messiah, in their minds, was exactly the opposite. Their image of the Messiah was that he would take the throne in Jerusalem, that he would overthrow the Romans, that he would lead Israel as a warrior king like David. They would become once more the greatest nation in the world. Israel would be a glorious nation again on a shining, shining from a great hill. What was wrong? That was not who Jesus was. That was not the Messiah that God had sent. And they heard Jesus speak of himself. And they bought into, well, he's the son of God. You're the Christ, the son of God. But they would not buy into what he said he would do. Let me ask you, what's your Jesus like? What's your Messiah like? Philip Yancey, a Christian writer, a very good Christian writer, wrote a book several years ago titled, the Jesus I never knew. The Jesus I never knew. 
he talked about how the Bible kept forcing him to under to to un, to, to change his view of Christ. The Bible kept challenging him to to change his understanding of who Jesus was. He said in Sunday school as he grew up, he learned that Jesus was more like Mr. Roberts on Mr. Roberts' neighborhood. He was like a, a male nanny who patted children on the head and told them to be good. That was his view of Jesus. I can identify with what Yancey was saying. There was a time in my life when I looked at Jesus as sort of this pleading savior who wanted so badly to save us. He was sort of a beggar. Uh, he would stand at the foot of an aisle and, and be glad to have anything that we would bring him. And I can remember specifically when that changed. The Holy Spirit had a lot to do with it. I was reading from Matthew chapter 10. I was in college. I was reading from Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Look at that with me. Do not think, this is Jesus speaking, do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Do you understand what? That's not Jesus begging. That's Jesus coming to our lives and ripping down the virtual idols that are in our lives. He chose those relationships. Father and mother, son and daughter, mom and dad. Those closest relationships we'll have in our lives. And, he'll say, and he was saying, you will love me more. I will be first. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Here was a Jesus ripping, virtually ripping. He wasn't a beggar begging. He was a king of kings and lord of lords ripping at the idols of my life. I also had at that time a Jesus who, Messiah, who, yes, he saved sinners, but he only accepted good people. You had to be good to be saved. You had to be good for Jesus to love you. You had to be religious to get in his kingdom. And then I read, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When, when Jesus called me, there was nothing in me to recommend me to him. I always thought, you know, when you clean up your, you know, clean up your life and then come to church. No, it's Jesus that cleans up your life. It's the Holy Spirit that cleans up your life. When God lays hold of our lives, it's got to be nothing in my hands I bring. Nothing. I don't have anything. It's like the, the tax collector. Here was the Pharisee saying, here's what I bring to you. God, look how good I am. And the tax collector said, I don't have anything to bring. I can't bring anything. I met a Jesus whose entire ministry was fighting with the good people of the church who thought they were deserving. All those years I had cursed those Pharisees 
only to wake up one morning and find out that I was indeed a Pharisee. What are we saying? There's not one Christian in this congregation this morning. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. I don't care uh, how knowledgeable you are about God and about Scripture. There's not one Christian in this congregation or any other church that has not at sometimes had an erroneous view of Jesus. There's not a Christian in this congregation as we read God's word that's not being corrected about our view of God and our view of Scripture. I battle it every week in my own life. God causing me to refocus and understand who he is. Who Christ is. In his book, Yancey, in this book, The Jesus I Never Knew, Yancey talks about Jacob Neusner. Jacob Neusner is a, a Jewish scholar on Judaism. His expertise is especially early Judaism during the time of Jesus. And he wrote a book. It's a, it's a very interesting book. He wrote a book about a rabbi speaks with Jesus. And he likes Jesus. He talks about being drawn to Jesus. He especially liked the Sermon on the Mount. But Neusner said he came to a point where he had to part company with this rabbi from Nazareth. Because this rabbi from Nazareth, he said, here's where he parted company. He said, this rabbi from Nazareth stopped or said, You've heard it said, but I say to you, he said he began to speak with the authority of God as if he were God. And he said, I had to part company with him. Jesus would say, you have heard, but I say to you. Newsner would say, no, I, I can't have a Messiah like that. A Messiah that's deity. By the way, notice in this passage in that we read this morning that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, for the Son of Man must do that. During Advent, we looked at that from Daniel. Where did Jesus get it? When he used the title Son of Man about himself, that in itself was a claim to deity. Neusner's right. Even though we were there recently, I, I put it in our scripture this morning, Daniel 7 Verse 13, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of the heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and presented and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and a peoples and a nation and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall never be destroyed. Jesus was saying, I am the son of man from Daniel. That in itself was a claim to deity. It was a claim to Messiahship. When Jesus is hard to hear, when Jesus is hard to hear, it may be because we don't want to give up our self-made Messiah. Tyler was at a funeral yesterday in Colorado. It was a sad time. Involved someone from his family. And he spoke about the eulogy. 
And he didn't know that this was a subject this morning. But the man stood in the, a man stood in the pulpit. A minister stood in the pulpit and stated the truth from Scripture about the sovereignty of God and said, but I can't have a God like that. You ever think that way? I do. Tempted. That's what Jesus is saying here. Peter, John, James, they all looked at Jesus. And even though he had said it, they said to his face, that cannot be. People, that's unbelief. That's sin. Jesus, when he said these words, were calling his disciples to lay aside the false Messiah that you have in your head. This was Jesus' repetition of his suffering was also a call to submit to the plan of God. Look again at verse 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. Everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Well, what was written by the prophets? Did the prophets write their plans or God's plans? The prophets were always saying, Thus saith the Lord. Jesus was saying, Go back and look at the prophets. We will go to Jerusalem and the plan of God disclosed by the prophets that I would die. Read Isaiah 53. One of the greatest descriptions of what happened at Calvary. 700 years before it happened. And the prophet wrote it. He was looking at Isaiah 53. Jesus had looked at Isaiah 53 and said, that's going to happen, Peter, at Jerusalem. And it's according to God's plan. Folks, it's one thing to throw aside and get rid of our self-made besides. It's quite another to submit to God's plan. We always were so sly about this. It's easy to accommodate God or Jesus in our lives. It's easy to accommodate the person of Jesus in our lives. And, but we incorporate Jesus into our plans. We incorporate Jesus into what we want. I can have plans to be a great preacher in this huge church. That can be my plan. And I can incorporate Jesus into my super plan. And completely ignore God's plan. In fact, I can use Jesus. This is the worst. I can use Jesus to fulfill my plans. You remember, the, this, is, this is so plain. Remember the mother of James and John when she came to Jesus? This was toward the end. This is after he began to speak about his death, by the way. And she said, Jesus, I have something to ask you for my two sons. And by the way, they were standing there. I went back and reread that this week. They were standing there when she said that. In other words, they said, hey, mom, go talk to him about us. He'll listen to you. She said, I, Jesus, can, can James, when you come into your kingdom, can James stand with you on your left and John on your right? Look at it in Matthew 20, 21, or Matthew 20, 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons kneeling before him when she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said, 
Say that these two sons of mine are to sit one on your right and the other on your left in your kingdom. She and her two sons wanted to fit Jesus into their plans. Now we can laugh about that, but I do that all the time. Jesus, here, I'm going to fit you into my plan. You're the son of God. You're the sovereign God of the universe. I don't know about, I don't want to know your plan. Just, I, but this plan is very comfortable with me. I'm going to fit you in to my plan. By the way, do you remember what Jesus told him? Jesus turned to the sons and said, are you willing to drink of the cup that I drink from? In other words, he talked about his death. He said, my plans for you are completely different. And we'll get to that in a minute. They were completely different. Mark Buchanan wrote a very quotable book named Your God is Too Safe. And he had an excellent take on Peter at this point. Remember in, in, the, the, in Jesus' ministry when uh, the disciples had been out fishing all night in the Sea of Galilee and, and they were coming into shore and Jesus was there and he said, Peter, throw your, throw your nets out on the other side of the boat. Now, Peter had been out all night. He was a professional fisherman. You can just see Peter. He's saying, Jesus, you're the preacher. You're not the fisherman. I'm the fisherman. But to humor Jesus, he threw his nets out and he caught this. He didn't catch a boatload of fish. He caught boatload after boatload after boatload of fish. And Mark Buchanan wrote this. Imagine the moment. Fish scales fleck Peter's hands like gold dust and diamond chains. Ah, Wait until my wife hears about this. We'll take that dreamed of vacation down by the seaside report of Joppa or the resort of Joppa. Maybe we'll buy an RV. Maybe I'll pay off the house. I wonder, I wonder if my wife will let me buy that new Boston whaler that I've always wanted with the swivel seats. Imagine the moment he wrote, laughing, laughing. Heart light and huge with laughter. The weirdness of the long night falling swiftly away. Peter looks at Jesus. Maybe, maybe I can get Jesus to become my partner. Say maybe I give him 10% of the profits. And then he writes this. But there's a strange look in Jesus' eyes. A wild, burning, dangerous look. And Peter gets a hunch of what's coming, that Jesus' calling is not to follow Peter. His role and task in life is not to advance Peter's career and enhance Peter's reputation and thicken Peter's wallet. Peter sees it all in Jesus' eyes. He sees that Jesus is not the man who exists simply to come unto our fish boats and fill up our nets. Peter must know that Jesus is about to say, Peter, you follow me. I don't follow you. Does it really mean this? That I have to leave everything, the boat, the nets, the safety, the security, the prospects. And Mark Buchanan concludes that happens in our lives if we know Jesus constantly. Because he comes to our lives and says, these are your plans. But this is my plan. It's one thing to get rid of self-made messiahs. 
When we, we can confess that he's God, we can confess that he gave himself a ransom for us, but it is quite another to bow and submit to his plan. That brings us to the third call. Jesus' repetition of his suffering is also a call to suffer with him. Remember a minute ago I said, we'll get back to this. When she said, let them stand one on your left and the other on your right. What did Jesus say? Are you willing to drink of the cup that I drink from? He was speaking about the cross. Are you ready to come and suffer with me? Look at verse 32. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. Jesus was calling them right there. He said, are you willing to drink from the cup? They will mock me. They will insult me. They will spit on me. They will flog me. They will kill me. It was foreign that the Messiah would suffer. It was also foreign that they would suffer. They did not sign on. You can believe when they said, when they began to follow him. When they confessed, you're the Christ, the son of God. The furthest thing from their minds was suffering. Listen to John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world will hate you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In other words, I've said to you, I've said this before to you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Now, that's a key. You know, there's people that are just sour, complaining people. And the world is always down on them. And the world, the world doesn't like, you know, that's not what Jesus is saying. If you are just a dour, sourpuss, the world's down on you. You get out of bed every morning complaining. And the world's against you all day long. And you, you, you communicate that to your husband, your wife, your children, and all the people around you. That's not what this is saying. That's you. And the second fruit of the Spirit is joy. Jesus said the persecution comes because of me in your life. Make sure it's that. You can just see Peter and James and Matthew, John. I would love to have been in these conversations. After the ascension, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, after the ascension, when they were beginning to understand it all. And maybe James said, you know, remember when he would speak to us about how he would be humiliated and tortured and killed in Jerusalem? We just didn't get it. We didn't get it. And he knew he knew he was telling us that we would be humiliated and tortured and killed. You see, they got it after the ascension. 
Look at Acts 540. I love this passage. You ought to circle this red letter. Go back. It's just beautiful. They've been arrested. They're before the Sanhedrin and they send them out. And in verse 40, we read, and when they had called in the apostles, they called them back in. They beat them. They flogged them and charged them. Do not speak in the name of Jesus anymore. And they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Wow. Let one of us stand on your left and the other on your right. And Jesus says, yeah, believe me, you do not want to be there because I'm going to be on a cross. Are you, can you drink of the cup I'm going to drink from? And they got it. Yes, Jesus. We will count it an honor to drink from that cup. Have you ever, have we ever walked away from either covert or overt rejection by the world because of Jesus? And actually said, thank you. What an honor to suffer with Christ. To suffer in his name. Now, just in case you're thinking that somehow I've misinterpreted this. I don't see how you would think that. But look at Hebrews 13, 12 and 13. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, therefore, because of that, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Paul prayed and talked to the Philippians. He told them that he prayed I want to know the fellowship of sharing his sufferings. The Council of Nicaea was convened in Turkey in 325 AD. It was one of the great, great councils of the church. 318 bishops, elders, ministers attended. 318. It was only a very few of them, maybe 12, maybe 20, that did not bear scars of persecution. People that were there wept as they saw these men. Bishops, elders, leaders in the church, because they limped into the room, crippled. By torture. It was said that Constantine, the emperor, kissed the eyeless cheek of a man who had lost his sight for Jesus. His eyes had been put out. It was said that at the Council of Nicaea, 
if you didn't have the scars, you felt odd. Remember the movie in Jaws? Remember the, the three men, they're on the boat. There's the sheriff, the old fisherman then that had fought sharks all of his life. and The young student who had studied sharks and been around sharks. And, and they've been drinking. Remember that? And they start comparing scars. Remember the, the captain said, let me show you this scar. And the young man would say, oh, I got this one. And the sheriff, he didn't have any experience with sharks. And he was completely left out of the conversation. He had no scars. You may say, well, John, we live in a different day. In the 20th century, we had more brothers and sisters die for Jesus Christ than any previous century. Folks, the world has not changed. And neither is Jesus. Our hymn is a great, great hymn of the faith. As we affirm our faith, there is a fountain filled with blood. Let's stand together as we sing. <laughs>